Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, there are currently few politicians in the country who wouldn't agree that housing is now a crisis in Australia and that the problem is getting worse. The issue is so urgent that the Queensland government held a roundtable conference about it on Friday. And one of its first resolutions was to place 200 homeless people in rooms at a university college. But that's just the start. Premier Ana Anastasia Palaszczuk said after the meeting, quote, we are now asking Queenslanders out there, people, businesses, church groups, if you have any properties or land that we can, that can help us, we will work with you. She went on, already one of the participants in today's meeting identified 90 blocks of land across Queensland with the view of putting some accommodation on those blocks of land, unquote. So that's where we're at. Finding vacant blocks of land so the government can stick up mobile homes for the homeless. This is yet another band-aid solution to a problem of the government's own making. And the Queensland government isn't alone. All the state housing ministers met their new federal counterpart in July to discuss the crisis and ways to implement the federal Anthony Albanese government's election promises. Before this group of ministers met, the Urban Development Institution of Australia, or UDIA, released a statement offering them some advice which was to remove the red and green tape that, quote, prevents a property supply side response to housing demand, unquote. The UDIA suggested streamlining planning and approval of new, new developments to reduce delays. <clears throat> its national president said, quote, both state and federal governments need to partner to find meaningful solutions to the challenges of housing costs coupled with smart lending practices and incentives that blend ownership with supply. In this way, we can meet the demands for access to housing across the spectrum and begin to address the housing supply and affordability crisis." Unquote. Well, the summit ignored the UDIA's plea. Speeding up the approval process for new developments didn't even get a mention in their resolutions. Instead, the state and federal ministers resolved to throw $10 billion of your money at 30,000 so-called affordable homes. By the way, you hear that term affordable housing a lot these days. It sounds nice, but it's actually the opposite. It's a euphemism for tiny, identical prison-like cells in large blocks that nobody would choose to live in if they could. Here's a typical example. This is one floor of an approved development in Randwick in inner Sydney. It's essentially a 67 room boarding house. The average dwelling, including kitchen, bedroom and bathroom, is a depressing 17 square metres. That's smaller than the average hotel room. This is what current policies are encouraging because governments can promote them as affordable. Meanwhile, in Brisbane, politicians and other officials hold their own follow-up to the federal gab fest and celebrate the fact that they've found 200 beds for the homeless at a university college. It's pathetic. 
Queensland Deputy Premier Stephen Miles said after last week's meeting, quote, when Queenslanders and Queensland organisations decide to work together, they really can do great things, unquote. Well, they'd do even greater things if the government did what the UDIA suggested and cut the red and green tape stopping new developments being built. I've quoted this before, but it bears repeating. Former Liberal Federal MP Tim Wilson says in his book, The New Social Contract, that the focus for a young person is to finance a home. Later in life, he or she then starts thinking about financing retirement. Australia's compulsory superannuation scheme reverses this. Australian workers start saving for retirement in their teens with their first pay packet. Some young people can't even afford to rent these days. According to Domain, the average rental house in 85% of Australian suburbs is now at an all-time high. That's 85% of Australian suburbs. Yet the federal government's compulsory superannuation scheme is forcing people who can't afford to rent a home to save for their retirement, locking their own money away for decades while they struggle to meet basic living standards. And where does that money wind up for all those decades? Well, it's pumped by the former unionists who run the super funds into union-only infrastructure projects that make their mates in the Labor government look like nation builders. Meanwhile, the people whose money it is struggle to put a roof over their heads. The arrogance and absurdity of this arrangement was inadvertently revealed at the Financial Review's Property Summit last week. The AFR reported, quote, Super funds are pushing for greater tax concessions that will allow them to expand commercial build-to-rent housing, currently a premium product, into a more mass market offering, unquote. That's right. These funds are sitting on the money that young people should be using as a deposit for their own homes, but instead the funds want to use it to build rental properties, which are, quote, a premium product. That means they're highly profitable and they want tax concessions to do it. The arrogance is mind blowing. Has it occurred to anyone in the federal government that if Australia's style of compulsory super, which we've had for over three decades now, was such a great idea, other countries would have copied it by now. Not one nation has had a look at it and thought, well, that's a good idea. Shouldn't this be ringing alarm bells in Canberra? New Treasurer Jim Chalmers said last month that the super funds should be, quote, addressing some of our most formidable economic challenges, one of which he said was housing. Well, you're right there, Jim. And nobody knows those formidable economic challenges better than the people who own the money but aren't allowed to spend it. Here's a tip that will help young Australians and boost real investment in new housing. Tell the parasites in the superannuation industry to give the money back to the people who earned it. Well, here's a question we don't ask ourselves every day, but perhaps we should. Why does the Australian Capital Territory even exist? 
The obvious answer is so that we can have a national capital designed around our national parliament. And we all know how that turned out. The national parliament is not a bubble, as they call it. It's its own ecosystem. The issues that people obsess over inside that heavily fortified and guarded building bear little relevance to the lives of the people on the other side of the state circle road that encircles it. Our nation would be a very different place if our politicians weren't cloistered away from those they purport to serve and instead went about their business in the middle of downtown Sydney, Melbourne or any other capital city. Their sense of superiority would disappear quickly for a start and the issues they discuss might be more relevant to everyday life than climate change and indigenous voices. But it's a bit late now to shift it. We're stuck with the national parliament being where it is. But the ACT? What purpose does that serve? It was originally created so that New South Wales, which surrounds it, could have no influence over the federal government. Fair enough. But the founding fathers who said the territory should occupy no less than 100 square miles didn't realise what monster they were creating. Initially, the place was run by a federal minister. A plebiscite of ACT residents in 1978 voted overwhelmingly for that situation to continue. But the federal government, which understandably has better things to do, ceded power to a legislative assembly um, elected, elected democratically anyway in 1988. And for most of the time since then, the electorate with the highest proportion of bureaucrats in the nation has voted in leftist legislators who couldn't run a chook raffle. One of the ACT government's greatest achievements is to install a forest of windmills in the surrounding bushland and boast that it only produces renewable energy. This is true, but the territory relies on New South Wales to provide it with reliable and cheap coal and gas-fired energy to keep the lights on and heaters working during those freezing Canberra nights. So while there could be an argument for dispensing with the ACT government altogether, this week, it took one step closer to actually getting bigger. Let's get the host of the local breakfast talkback show on 2CC, Stephen Senatiempo, to talk about it. Stephen, welcome. Good morning, Fred. Good evening. evening. Yes. So the <laughs> ACT is growing. What's the story? How did this happen? Yeah. There's a, a shared development uh, called Gin and Dairy. It's a new suburb that's been created that straddles the ACT New South Wales border. Well, it's been announced this week that the ACT government is uh, going to take over the whole lot. They've done a deal with Dominic Perrottet that uh, they, the ACT will expand to, uh, to include the entire suburb of Gin and Dairy, which um, i got to say the ACT is well and truly big enough and we've got a government that can't manage what it's got already. So uh, I don't know that it necessarily needs another suburb added to the ACT. Did the, uh, were the people of the ACT asked about this? Do they want it? Uh, look, I, I'm sure that most, most people in the ACT probably don't know that it's going on or don't particularly care, but no, they won't, weren't asked. There's one thing about this government is that it doesn't, the ACT government, that is, it doesn't consult with uh, locals on anything whatsoever. And I just want to put it up on something. When you say it's democratically elected, it's a glorified council of 25 members that's elected by this anomaly called the Hare Clark system, uh, which they use in Tasmania and the Northern Territory. And I, I prefer to call it the Duckworth Lewis system because nobody understands how it works. And we've got some members of the assembly that have been elected with about 60 or 70 votes. So it's hardly democratic. 
Oh, well, is there an argument for shrinking the ACT? I mean, can put it, let me put it another way. What are, what's its central purpose? And could it be reduced to just managing all the federal buildings instead of the city? Absolutely. And the, the problem with the ACT is, is, well, it's twofold. Firstly, that it is too big. And the National Capital Authority manages all of the nationally significant institutions within the ACT anyway. Things like Parliament House, the National Archives, uh, the Australian War Memorial, the Mint, all of these kind of things, the embassies are run by the National Capital Authority, which is a federal government agency. And it's run by a board. It's got a CEO that does a very, very good job. They get on with business and do things very well. They're part of Canberra, which is largely confined to what they call the parliamentary triangle, which is around the edges of Lake Burley Griffin. It's beautiful. It's pristine. It's like you remember Canberra used to be. Beyond that, it's run by what I like to call Canberra City Council or the ACT government, which is an absolute farce. Um, so my argument has always been that the National Capital Authority should keep, keep control of what it does now and the rest should be absorbed back into New South Wales where we can get a, a full-size proper government to actually run the show. And even if it's a Labor government, I don't care. I know they're going to do a better job than the ACT government does. <laughs> well done. Now, you're probably more qualified than most people to describe the contrast between what it's like inside Parliament House and life outside it, because I imagine you spent a lot of time uh, crossing from one to the other. It's quite the contrast, isn't it, Stephen? It really is. And, and it's the problem with Parliament House is not only that the politicians are out of touch, and, and I was only having a discussion with uh, ACT Senator David Pocock about this this morning, that I think our federal politicians spend far too much time in Canberra. They should get back out to their electrics and talk to real people. But you've got this, this building on the hill that is separated from the rest of Canberra. The bubble sits over it, not over the ACT. They've got their own restaurants, their own coffee shop. They've got a hairdresser in there. They've got their own post office. They've got their own gym. They're even separated from the public areas of Parliament House where the general public are allowed to go in and see what's going on. They don't have any concept of what real life outside of that building is. And it's not just the politicians. It's the members of the press gallery. It's the, the people that work in Parliament House. It, as you say, it is its own little ecosystem. They talk to each other. They eat with each other. Most of them share houses with each other. No concept of what you and I are living with or dealing with out in the real world. Well, one of the issues they seem to grapple with is housing. And that's a, that's a problem in, uh, in the ACT as well. It seems obvious to everyone except politicians that the problem is supply being way south of demand, mm. which is bad enough, but it will be exacerbated by increases in, in immigration, which is another federal issue. Now, you've got an interesting example down there of new release of uh, blocks of land that were heavily subscribed. Can you explain this story to us? Well, it, it, basically, the ACT government has what they call an infill policy. So they want 70 to 80 percent of all new dwellings to be infill in existing areas. So that means either uh, dual occupancies on, on larger blocks of land or uh, medium to high density developments. They, they keep calling it urban sprawl if you suggest that they uh, release more freestanding homes or, or blocks for freestanding homes. Uh, the last time they did it, they released, I think it was 70 blocks and the ballot to get your hands on these 70 blocks was subscribed by about 7,000 people. Now, if that doesn't tell you that demand is outstripping supply, I don't know what does. But the, uh, if, you, if you bring that up, they say, oh, well, you, or, or you, you want to just continue urban sprawl and you want to kill the green tree frogs. It's, it's absolute ludicrous. But what it is, is the ACT government is broke 
And if it actually does expand and supply more homes, it's got to provide more infrastructure and it doesn't have money for that. Well, there's a new poll out today showing that support for a republic has dropped since Queen Elizabeth has died. And this is the, the third poll to show this. What's the feeling about the monarchy in Canberra these days? Yeah, I think it's about the same as everywhere else. I saw a poll by the, the local newspaper only today, and um, it's um, basically couldn't better described as a left-wing rag. And even its poll uh, had a marginal tilt towards maintaining the monarchy over the republic. But I, I said to a few people this week that the arguments in favour of becoming a republic have always been very sophomoric and juvenile, and they've only gotten more so in recent times, whereas the arguments in favour of maintaining the monarchy have um, become more sophisticated. They've gone beyond the if it ain't broke, don't fix it argument. But I think the real thing holding the uh, Republican movement back is that those leading it are just such insufferable prats. <laughs> well said. Yeah, I mean, for one, they did. They haven't got their finger on the pulse because they didn't pick uh, what how Australia was going to respond. And also, they just don't seem like the kind of people you would trust you know, they'd certainly put themselves forward as potential uh, heads of state, as they call it. I prefer to call it a president. Mm. But, I mean, you wouldn't have one of those, uh, you know, in, in, as I said earlier, in charge of a chook raffle, let alone presidency of a nation, would you? No, exactly. And I think the, the greatest strength of the monarchy, particularly in a constitutional monarchy, is that the monarch sits above the political fray. Now, regardless of whether you have a president elected by the parliament or a president directly elected by the people, that person has to be a politician. It's the only way it can work. And that means that our head of state is part of the, the absolute um, cesspool that is Australian politics at the moment. We've just talked about the bubble over Parliament House. It just becomes another occupant of that, whereas the monarch sits above that and doesn't get involved. I know that you've got people like Paul Bongiorno and the like trying to rewrite history at the moment and say that the Queen was uh, complicit in the dismissal of of Whitlam back in 1975, which we know is not true. I mean, every investigation has proved otherwise. But the reality is that King Charles III will sit above all of that and that's the best way to maintain things, in my view. Yeah, well said, and good luck to King Charles. Now, let's talk about Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen going to New York to tell the Global Clean yeah. Energy Action Forum. I love the word action. He's, he's going to tell them that Australia is prepared to sell its economic prosperity in exchange for a few pats on the back at international climate conferences. Stephen, is this a good idea? Uh, to, is this a good idea at a time when the Northern Hemisphere is facing a catastrophic winter of power shortages? Well, let's go back a step and ask ourselves: Is it a good idea to have Chris Bowen in charge of anything? I mean, this bloke is—he's he, never had a real job. I mean, the guy was a, a, a second-rate local councillor in Western Sydney who undermined his own boss to get himself a seat in Parliament, and and now here he is. I mean, this is a bloke who was um, taking potshots at Susan Lee for saying that the uh, motor vehicle industry hasn't uh, produced electric utes yet. And his proof that they have, he's standing next to a giant F-150 Ford pickup truck that even the petrol versions to get bring them to Australia at the moment are nearly $200,000. Can you imagine your average plumber being able to fork out 200 grand to put a new ute on the road? And when these things are towing something, they've only got 100 kilometres of range in them with the, the current technology. But... Getting back to this global uh, superpower, renewable energy superpower rubbish that he goes on with, what, what are we going to do? Build a giant um, extension cord from Australia to somewhere else in the world, 
like the ACT does. And when you say they've got the windmills, they're actually in New South Wales. They're not in the ACT, so they don't even produce the energy here. Um, I just think it's farcical. And then he takes selfies of himself in the United Nations saying, oh, the adults are back in charge or we're, we're responsible global citizens again. The bloke is a clown. Yeah, I like the way he, he says Australia is back. I, I can't help thinking he's uh, it's a sly reference to Tony Abbott's face, uh, famous statement when he won the 2013 election saying Australia is back in business. But uh, with mm. Bowen in charge, we're not in business. We're probably heading down the plug hole, don't you think? Yeah, we're back in hock is what we are. <laughs> okay, Stephen, quickly before you go, um, you might have seen United States President Joe Biden announce this week that the COVID pandemic is over. Did something change or did he just decide it was over? I, I, well, I don't know whether he was reading notes that somebody else had given him or he'd just woken up from a dream, who knows, with Joe Biden. But look, I think we all know that the COVID pandemic is over. Um, maybe we should take it as a good sign that the President of the United States has finally woken up to that. Yeah, well, he won't have to wear masks when he's outdoors anymore. That's a relief. Stephen no. Sanatambo, <laughs> thanks for your time. Good on you, Fred. Talk to you next week. Okay, see you then. That's 2CC Breakfast Talkback host, Stephen Senatiampo. The creation of two classes of citizens in Australia took another giant leap forward this week when the idea was backed by two local multinational corporations. The companies are biotech outfit CSL and real estate developer Lendlease. Lendlease's global chief executive, Tony Lombardo, said the company was, quote, right behind the Australian government's commitment to bring the Uluru Statement from the Heart to life, including through an Indigenous voice to parliament, unquote. That Uluru Statement includes the, the assertion that Aboriginal sovereignty over the Australian continent was, quote, never ceded or extinguished, which is a curious concept for a real estate developer to endorse. CSL Chairman Brian McNamee, meanwhile, says now is the perfect opportunity for Australia to sever ties with its colonial past because not even, quote, brand Windsor, unquote, could rehabilitate the tarnished image of Charles or the monarchy. He said, quote, alas, this will be a difficult task for both him, given his history, and the reality of the many bad deeds undertaken on behalf of the UK in many far off countries, including Australia, for which he will need to apologise, unquote. Both of these corporate titans supported the idea of the voice to parliament a new, a special new chamber of Indigenous spokespeople that would advise the elected parliament on Indigenous matters. Or, to put it another way, the voice would imbue some Australians, but not others, with their own hereditary privileges. You know, just like the royal family has. As the brilliant Warren Mundine said in the Financial Review yesterday, quote, can any of them, by which he meant these woke corporate bosses, explain what the voice is or what it will achieve? How will it end violence in remote communities, lift disadvantaged indigenous people out of poverty, or deliver economic prosperity? Unquote. 
Well, no. But at least they've ticked the woke boxes shareholders and staff expect them to. Well, it's always a pleasure to get the sensible, succinct and sometimes acerbic law professor James Allen on the show. James was born in Canada but has degrees from the London School of Economics and the Hong Kong University and taught at the University of Otago in New Zealand before becoming law professor at the University of Queensland in 2005. His video from my show two weeks ago saying that, co that the COVID lockdown was the worst public policy fiasco in more than 200 years has had 50,000 hits on Facebook and attracted a lot of supportive comments. And I'm delighted to say James is back. James, how are you? Thank you, Fred. But look on reflection, I should have said the worst public policy in 300 years. So <laughs> let me apologize to all the uh, viewers for understating the problem. Well, I'm sure that uh, our Indigenous brothers and sisters would probably agree it was the worst in 60,000. But anyway, we'll, we'll let that one through to the keeper. First, let's talk about the absolutely massive legal story that is brewing in Queensland. The Australians reported today that two employees from a DNA laboratory had been making quote-unquote untrue statements to courts since early 2018. This casts doubt over thousands of criminal cases. James, you've heard about this, I assume. What's the potential fallout here? Well, I'm not a criminal lawyer, but I have heard about it. Uh... And, and to be honest, the, the one area of law where the high court is getting things right, in my view, is criminal law. They did a good job on Pell. They did a good job on Patel. Uh, other areas, they've been pretty useless. Uh, uh, well, you know, the, normally you consider the best sort of evidence available to be fingerprints and DNA. You know, eyewitness evidence is, is not all, not nearly as worthwhile as people think. People get identifications wrong all the time. So if they are actually doing something intentionally wrong with the DNA, that's a gigantic problem. Gigantic. Yeah, yeah it is. I mean, anything that we casts... We don't know enough of the facts yet, but it does seem pretty bad. Yeah, well, it's, uh, the story's only broken, but uh, yeah, it does seem pretty bad, really. Well, let's talk about um, politics in your home country of Canada. The Conservative Party has elected Pierre Poiliev as its new leader. His strategy is to bring centre-right voters with him to a more conservative position. What are his chances of winning at the election in 2025, James? Well, firstly, I like him. Secondly, the way his name dripped off your tongue was very impressive, Fred. We have to, we have to congratulate you. So in the, the thing that people need to know is that Canada, quite a while ago, took the choice of leader out of the hands of the party room. So the old British view that the party room picks the leader, that is gone everywhere except Australia. In Britain, we've seen that basically the party room gets it down to the last two and then the, the membership picks. In Canada, the, the party room doesn't even get it down to the last two. Anyone can run and the party members choose the leader. So this guy is a real conservative, Poiliev. He would have no chance of getting picked by the party room. The party room is full of so-called moderates, think of the Christopher Pines black hand gang, that sort of thing. They would never have chosen this guy. And I don't think he would have got down to the last two out of the party room. So he won 68% of the membership vote. That's a whopping majority. The, the second place guy who'd be your sort of uh, establishment, Malcolm Turnbull type, he got 16% of the vote, Jean Charest. And Poliev has said things and he's confirmed them since being chosen. He's going to significantly defund the CBC for being so overtly biased. 
Now, you have to people have to realize that compared to the ABC, the CBC is balanced. It's it's not balanced in the normal world, but in comparison to the ABC, which hasn't got a single identifiable conservative as a producer, presenter, anything. Um, and he has come out and said, I know that after I said this, the CBC will attack me relentlessly, but I am going to seriously defund them. Half the population shouldn't be paying for this. Completely right. Um, he has said he will fire the governor of the uh, oh, before reserve, we move, hang on, before reserve, we, the Bank of Canada. But, well, before on we move one. on to that, James, before we move on to that, what's the response been like from the CBC? Because the fear in Australia is that any government that threatens to uh, defund the ABC or sell it off is going to cop the wrath of the ABC. How has the CBC responded to him so far? Well, let's be honest, Fred. You cop the wrath of the public broadcaster whether you say you're going to defund them or not. And throwing $80 million their way just before the election is pathetic. I think he's, uh, you know, to, to paraphrase Shakespeare and Richard II, he's making a virtue of necessity. They're going to attack him anyway for being a conservative. So by saying he's going to defund them, the attacks look illegitimate in a way. You know, he's just going to say, look, because I'm defunding them, of course they're going extra. They're attacking me even more. Uh, the Can people need to realize the median voter in Canada is to the left of the median voter here by quite a bit. And so he's trying to take them and move them considerably to the right. And since he's been chosen, they've gone up about five points in the polls. But most especially noticeable is amongst young people under 30. He's getting a lot. I think people crave actually policies. The Morrison and his advisors, and I don't think Dutton's got rid of enough of the advisors, but their sort of texture view is just to park yourself a centimeter to the right of the left wing party. And they call that being in the center. But as the left moves left, you know, they move left, too. And and you can't think of a single right wing thing we got out of nine years of a coalition government except for Abbott stopping the boats. And well, I think as a result of that, Paulie Evers tapping into the sort of Brexit, Trump, we need to offer something to our core voters. And, you know, you can maybe come up with something, but you have to rack your brains to think what they, you know, what they did for nine years of coalition government. They don't even appoint conservatives to tribunals, courts, or the main sort of bodies. So you, you get human rights commission appointees who are lefties. You get the head of the ABC is a lefty. And Paulie Evers just said, I'm not doing that. So we'll see how it works out. I think he's going to win. Well, let's get back to that in a second. I just want to go back to the point you made about how uh, Paulie Evers is selected. This is a great incentive for people to become members of a political party, isn't it? Yes, it is, because you have some say. Right now, you have to watch. I mean, one of the worst things that happened to the coalition was taking out Abbott. I think Abbott was a much weaker leader than he was as an opposition leader. But if your answer to Abbott is Turnbull, then you're you're not you're not asking the right question. So um, really, and so that we still haven't recovered from that, and we still I think have a significant chunk of the party room, even though the Teals took out a lot of them, who are just labor light. They and, and we saw this during the pandemic, completely worthless. So Poliev now he's untouchable because the party base has over two thirds have supported him. So the sort of Simon Birmingham's of the party they can't really say anything. If they don't like it, they just have to leave. Well, and let's it would be nice if. Sorry. Let, let, let's let's talk about whether or not he can win because this is a rare bit of good news for conservatives. I mean, there's not much good news for us here in Australia at the moment. So we may as well no, live not. vicariously through Canada. Yeah, How, no, what are his odds? 
Well, he's as I said, he's he's now ahead of the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party in Canada is the main left wing party, and then there's an even further left wing union party called the NDP, and then there's the Greens. So, I mean, there's a lot of left wing parties. Uh, so the Liberals are the sort of sort of center left labor like party. Um, but there's a separate party that is officially endorsed by the unions, but not many people vote for them. So uh, his chances, I think, are pretty good. I mean, I, it, I think it's always better to offer people a program. And we'll see. You know, generally, these people get elected and then they, you know, they run for the center. But he said he's not going to do that. He's he said the center now is so far left that we have to be sort of aiming to move it to the right. In Canada, because they don't have preferential voting, the trends are ahead of us. And so one of the trends is that rich people vote left. I've been saying this for a while. It's happening in Australia. The kind of seats that the Teals won, they're not coming back, you know, barring a financial meltdown where everyone moves back to the Conservatives. Rich people are to the left of the median voter. That didn't used to be the case. But they have the money. They can afford to virtue signal on the idiocies of net zero or um, you know, they don't they don't seem to mind that transgender men are, are competing against win, women, that sort of thing. Where where the, the the sort of winning coalition is the one that Boris and Trump put together of um, middle class, lower middle class, working class and people who hate woke and cancel culture. That's a majority of the population. And so your battle in Canada is in the suburbs. The inner well, speaking, city goes left. Well, speaking of the suburbs, um, I talked about this in my editorial earlier, earlier, and that is that housing is a big issue in Australia and there are many factors affecting it, the affordability of housing. One of them is interest rates. Now, Poiliev is proposing to do something about the central bank governor. Tell me about that and whether it applies as well in Australia. Well, he's proposing to fire him on the first day he wins the election. On the first day he wins office, he said, you're gone. Uh, because uh, his view is, and I think he's right, that uh, we had expansionist spendthrift politicians and we had a central bank, they call it the Bank of Canada, we call it the Reserve Bank, in the US it's the, it's the Fed, it's the Bank of England, and, but they're, you know, these are the people whose legislative job is to keep an eye on inflation and they, they instead got into bed with the politicians and they basically printed money which led to asset inflation. So it was the best two years ever during the pandemic for really rich people, billionaires, because when you're creating that much new money, it leads to asset inflation. And who has assets? Well, it's not the poor, it's not the young. And so, you know, if you have assets, you've had the greatest time ever. And I'm the most conservative law professor in the country, but it offends me that we've taken money from the poor to give to the rich. And we've got policies that take money in effect and life opportunities from the young to give to the old. And Poiliev has just said, uh, you know, the governor of the Bank of Canada took his eye off the ball. He was sort of into this mo modern monetary theory. We can just create money and he's going to be fired. But and of course, the chattering classes in Canada, they hate this. They yeah. just hate the fact that a politician would would uh, take out a member of the establishment bureaucracy. But I think just, it's great. Well, well, but yeah, taking out a member of the bureaucracy, but that's just uh, that's just one member, James. So, I mean, is sacking him the solution? Doesn't it require a more fundamental change? Well, this than is that? a particular sort of specialized area where if you put in your own guy who will actually try to get inflation under control and won't print money, uh, the bureaucracy can't undermine that very easily. So I think he's picked a good target. Uh, 
you know, we, we, we may be looking at going back to the late 1970s. So even now, the, the, the real inflation rate is negative. You take the inflation and you take the interest rates and the interest rates are below the inflation rate. So it's still worth your while to borrow. And to really get inflation under control in the 70s, they had to have inflation. They had to have interest rates above inflation. Well, that that's going to be interest rates at what, seven, eight, nine percent. It's going to be very painful if we have to do that. Yeah, that's going to cause carnage in the in the suburbs. That's for sure. Now let's quickly talk about carnage. Let's talk about Ron DeSantis. I'm sure you're going to love this story. The the very popular right. governor of Florida. Right. As you know, this week yeah. he flew 50 illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, the home of America's richest leftists, who predictably responded by loading the immigrants onto buses within 48 hours and sending them to a military camp. But here's the interesting bit, James. DeSantis has since backed this up with an advertising campaign reminding his Floridian constituents that illegal immigrants are not only undesirable, they're often dangerous killers. Now, this, is, this obviously reveals that there's something of a strategy in, uh, in what DeSantis has done. It's a really good example of, of a well-thought-out strategy. What do you think of what DeSantis has done? And don't you wish someone in Australia would be as clever oh as that? God. Look, Fred, I know people don't like to hear this, but this all can be traced back to Trump. Whatever you think of Trump, he fought back. And now we have a guy with two degrees, two Ivy League degrees, who's you know, Trump is smart. People say he's not, but he is. But DeSantis is also articulate. And, you know, he stood up during the pandemic against the the sort of doctorly cast and did a great job. And now he's, you know, people don't realize there's over two million illegal immigrants that have crossed the border every year under Biden. They're not even trying to have a border. And I think the underlying view is we'll get the electorate we want. We'll just bring in these sort of third world, very poor people and they will vote Democrat. And it's so cynical. And so DeSantis has responded to these people who put signs out of their mansion saying, you know, value every refugee or value. And he's actually sent them there and they don't like it at all. And so they, as you said, they've bust them away. And then, you know, the response was so negative that uh, it turns out the polls are turning, you know, the polls favor DeSantis. And so he he has then uh, they, they rounded up some of these 50 to sue DeSantis. And then DeSantis just today released their um, their signed uh, uh, approval slips that they signed before they got on the bus. So that's not going anywhere. He, he seems to be one step ahead of the Democrats. He's a very clever guy. Now, I don't think he can. You know, I would like him to run, but I don't think he'll win the nomination. I think Trump will win the nomination because people are on the Republican side are so angry at the Democrats and their obvious sort of hit job on Trump with the raid on his house that I just think that Trump's going to win the nomination. Well, I'd be supporting that too. Either of them is going yeah. to be good for uh, the United States. Yeah. yeah. Now, like speaking of fighting, is, is has uh, Mr. Dutton uh, escaped from uh, house <laughs> in prison? Yes, still under house arrest as far as I know. We'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on that one. We'll have to talk about that it's next time. It's protection or something. I just don't know where he is. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll keep an eye out for him. Let him know. Let me know if he's spotted up in Queensland, James. Well, you know, you should be able to spot him because if the sun's shining, you'd notice. No, you know. But, uh... <laughs> All right. Well, good on you, James. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Fred. Au revoir. Au revoir. Yeah. Hasta luego. Au revoir. A la prochaine fois. <laughs> That's University of Queensland Law Professor James Allen. And before I go, 
Tomorrow is a day off for all of us to mark the death of Queen Elizabeth. I suppose it would be too much to ask Republicans to go to work anyway. I'm not imagining many of us will mark the day with sombre rituals or vigils around candlelit portraits of Her Majesty. The Poms showed us this week how good they were at pomp and ceremony of such occasions. It's in their blood. I don't know about you, but I felt nervous just watching it. I was expecting something to go wrong at any second, but the whole extravaganza went off without a single hitch. There were some touching moments too, like Charles standing vigil for his mother's coffin, and the cute moment when Princess Charlotte told her elder brother George to bow during the funeral. I even saw the beef eater who led a guided tour for me and a few dozen other tourists around the Tower of London in June, marching alongside the coffin on its way to the Abbey. It was all great to watch. And as I said last night, we monarchists in Australia felt like we were lucky to be part of it, albeit in such a remote way. Elizabeth loved Australia and the feeling was mostly mutual. We Australians are not so good at that formal military stuff. We line up the diggers on Anzac Day for a march, but the highlight for most of us is the drunken game of two-up afterwards. This resistance we have towards excessive formality doesn't detract from our place in the Commonwealth or in the monarchy. Rather, it complements it. However you spend tomorrow, I hope you have a wonderful day. And God save the king. And even if he doesn't, then, well, we'll be getting another day off soon to commemorate him too. Such is life in the constitutional, constitutional monarchy of Australia. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for your company this week. See you on Monday at nine o'clock. Good night.